Advent season is a, a time of expectation and preparation as we celebrate the nativity of our Lord Jesus Christ. The, the word Advent literally means coming. And it reminds us that we need a Savior. That's why we celebrate Advent season. We need a Savior, and we need both His first Advent and His second Advent in order to be saved. And I think this passage is one of those passages that speak to, the, uh, to both Advents as clearly as any other passage in Scripture. So by God's providence, we are here today in this parable. You know, back in the winter of 1987, it was my first off-season conditioning program at Alabama. I was a freshman, and we had a new strength and conditioning coach, Rich Wingo, and uh, I, along with three other players, were in the weight room at 6 a.m. Uh, for a weight workout, and he came to us, and he said, look, I have a meeting upstairs with the other coaches, um, and so I've got to leave. And I'm going to come back. And when I come back, I'm going to hold you accountable for what you have done while I'm gone. Now, we didn't know how he was going to hold us accountable, but one thing we believed, he knew. He would know what we were doing. And so we worked out as if he was looking over our shoulders, okay? And we worked out hard. So when he comes back, he lines us up. He lines us up in a single file line and he comes up and he, he begins to fill the shirt of each one of us. We didn't know what he was doing, but we didn't ask questions. And when he felt the fourth guy's shirt, he said, guys, y'all didn't do what I asked you to do. You did not work out like I told you to work out. Now, that wasn't true. That we weren't sweating enough according to his specifications. He said, so come with me. So he took us out there, and it was somewhat like the weather today. It was in the 30s. We were in shorts and T-shirts, and he starts running us out on the practice field. We started running gassers, which are running across the field and back twice. That's one gasser. We ran 15 gassers. And when we were done, he said, now maybe you can work out like I told you to work out. You know... Rich Wingo was rarely wrong. He was wrong in that instance. And as a result, when he came back, we were punished unjustly. You know, the first advent of the Lord Jesus Christ, which finds its consummation in his cross, his resurrection, and his ascension to the right hand of the Father, is the greatest proof that he's coming back. It's the greatest proof there will be a second advent. But unlike Rich Wingo, his assessment when he returns will be infallible. You know that? Everything is open and laid bare before him to whom we will be held accountable. Hebrews 4 verse 13. And this parable is fitting for us for Advent season because it's a parable about life in the interim between his first advent, his first coming, and his second advent, his second coming. In other words, this parable challenges us to ask this question. Are we investing our lives in the interim period for the kingdom's sake? Or are we 
spending our lives in this interim period for our kingdom's sake. A kingdom that will be judged when he returns. And that's what this parable poses to us. And the parable actually comes out of a problem. And we see the problem in verse 11. It says, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Notice, as they heard these things, what things? Well, what happened in the previous passage? That's where Jesus encounters Zacchaeus and where we have that crucial verse, the theme of Luke, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And he tells us why he gives this parable. You can't be any more clear. Because they suppose that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So they're hearing about the Messiah who's coming to seek and to save the lost. And they are supposing that the kingdom of God is going to appear immediately. That's why he gives us the parable. Remember, blind Bartimaeus confessed Jesus as the son of David. We saw that two weeks ago, right? And Jesus has professed himself to be the son of man. Well, in earlier in Luke, in the genealogy, it, it traces Jesus back to Adam, the son of God. And so what Luke has made clear to us thus far, he's the son of God, he's the son of David, and he is the son of man. And so they are adding all these things up. Furthermore, they had heard of the authority of his teaching. And they had seen the unique manifestation of his lordship through his miracles. And they knew, these Jews knew, that the day of the Lord, the day where God would vindicate his name, the day where God would save his people and judge his enemies, they knew that day was going to be ushered in by, as we read this morning, the stem from the stump of Jesse. They knew their hope was in a Davidic son, a Davidic prince. And so they were caught up with these expectations. Here's the problem. Their expectations were primarily political, not spiritual. Uh, they did not realize the real problem was not Rome. The real problem was not the government. The real problem was their sin. And they were mistaken. They were utterly mistaken. And that's why Jesus is telling this parable. He is essentially saying this. When I come into Jerusalem, and in the next time we're in this text, he comes into Jerusalem. It will be on the Sunday before he's crucified on Friday. He says, when I come into Jerusalem... I'm not going to be enthroned as king, okay? Rather, I'm going to suffer as a criminal. Yes, I will receive a kingdom because of my triumphant work on the cross and in my resurrection and in my ascension, but I will not be enthroned as king. But I will usher in a kingdom, but not the kingdom you're expecting, a political kingdom. It will be a spiritual kingdom. A kingdom, as Luke 13 tells us, comes like a mustard seed. It grows to be this great tree. But this kingdom is not going to come unilaterally. 
I'm going to use a people to extend this kingdom to the ends of the earth. I'm going to use servant stewards. Those I've redeemed to play a part in this kingdom program. That's the point of this parable. In other words, there are two fixed dates on the divine calendar. The two most important dates that we could ever consider is not your date of birth or date of death. It's the first advent and the second advent. Those are the two fixed dates on the divine calendar that's crucial for all of us to understand. In the first advent, he comes and he fulfills all the righteous requirements of the law for those he represents, sinners. And then he goes to the cross and he experiences the wrath of God and God's anger and judgment is propitiated, appeased in him. And we know that because God raises him from the grave. That's the resurrection. He conquers sin, death, and the devil, appeasing the wrath of God in his resurrection. And then the Father, um, by this very Spirit of God, brings him up. It's what we call the assumption, raises him up. And that's what we have in the first advent. But there's also going to be a second advent where he returns in glory and majesty. And between these two fixed dates, the first advent and the second advent, stands the church, stands the people of God. And he is calling his people to be faithful servant stewards as they play a role in his kingdom expansion to the ends of the earth. And so this parable is intended to teach us two things, okay? First of all, why the kingdom will not be revealed on earth politically when he comes into Jerusalem. But secondly, the most important thing we can know to live lives with eternal significance is that we live between these two advents. We live between these times, and it matters. In fact, it's the very purpose for which we exist. To be his light, to be his witnesses, to be his custodians, to be his instruments between the times of his appearing. And that brings us to the parable in verse 12. He said, therefore, a nobleman, a king, nobleman, went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and return. You know, it's intentional that this is the last recorded words before his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. That's not a coincidence, okay? Um, he's about to enter Jerusalem where he's going to accomplish and finish his work in his first advent. And so what Jesus is giving us here is shorthand for the fact that after he has accomplished his work on earth that will come through a cross and a resurrection, he is going to ascend up into heaven. And the Father, as a reward for the victory and the accomplishment of the Son, who said to his Father the night before his death, I have finished the work you've given me to do. I have glorified you on the earth. As a reward, he will seat his son down at his right hand and he will give him 
the keys to the kingdom. He will give him all the kingdoms of the earth. It will be his. It will be his inheritance, as Psalm 2 teaches us. And one day, he's going to return to consummate what has already been entrusted to him upon his ascension. But before this nobleman to, uh, departs to obtain his kingdom, he gives his servants a sum, okay, to invest, a sum to invest, because we are going to play a role in his kingdom program. Look with me in verse 13. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minus, and he said to them, engage in business until I come. I love that King James Version there. Occupy until I come. Engage in business till I come. And so the nobleman here is making arrangements for his business to be carried on in his absence. Think about it. He has a business, a program that he's entrusting to these ten servants. And what he entrusted them are minas. Now, what is a mina? A mina is somewhere around three to four months' wage, okay? But I think what's important here is the number 10. Not because we know exactly what 10 means, but notice he doesn't say 12. If he was speaking specifically to the disciples, he would have said 12. But the number 10 tells us he's speaking to every disciple. This is a mandate in, uh, entrusted to every person who confesses Jesus as Lord. And so this number, I think, is significant. And on his return, upon receiving the kingdom, he's going to evaluate the results of their stewardship, of their management of what he has entrusted to them. Now, this um, parable sounds a lot like the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. But there is a significant difference between the parable of the talents and the parable of the minor. If you know your Bible, you know that in the parable of the talents, he gives every disciple, every servant, a different amount. So he'll, he'll give one person five talents, he'll give another person two talents, and he'll give another person one talent. And in Matthew 25, it tells us those talents represent abilities. So all of us have different abilities. All of us have different gift mixes. All of us have different opportunities and platforms, okay? It varies with each one of us, okay? But here, he gives each person the same amount. Every person is entrusted with one minor. So what is the mina representing here? I believe the mina represents a gospel-deposited life. Okay? Each one of us has, as believers, a gospel-deposited life. If you are a professing Christian, what you are professing and confessing is that Jesus Christ is Lord of your life. You are confessing that His life where he obeyed the Father, now represents you. 
and that his death where he satisfied the righteous requirements of the law in dying for sinners represents you and that his resurrection from the grave represents you, okay? And so you have a gospel-deposited life. And with that, you are called to be a steward with that life. And each one of us has the same amount to invest. We are called to invest, notice, for his business. Or as the King James says, occupy. We are to occupy our sphere of influence for his business with our gospel-deposited lives. That's what we'll be held accountable for when he returns. It's not about you. It's not about your kingdom. It's not about making a name for yourself. It's not about your comfort level or your bank book or your hobbies. It's not about any of that. It's about investing your gospel-deposited life for the sake of the nobleman. It's the only reason we're here, individually and corporately. Of course, not everyone's a servant. In fact, most aren't in our world, right? Most people do not confess Jesus as Lord. And although they will learn in the end that they were subject to his rule, in the present age they reject it. Notice with me in verse 14. But his citizens hated him. These aren't the servants. These are the citizens of the kingdom. They hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Of course, we know this is going to come to a head in just a few days. They're going to cry, as John 19 tells us, crucify him. We have no other king but Caesar. They outright, outright reject the nobleman's authority. And yet in spite of their rejection, in spite of their disdain, their hatred for this nobleman, nothing is going to interfere with this nobleman's kingship. Nothing. His kingship is going to come, and it's going to come effectually, infallibly. That's what Revelation uh, chapter 11, verse 15 tells us. when the, It tells us that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. That's sure proof. In other words, that is the story, that is the kingdom that's going to stand in the end. And if you're not investing your de uh, gospel-deposited life into that story, into that kingdom, then in the end, you will be held accountable for that. And that brings us really uh, to the principle of what uh, he is trying to say in this parable. Look with me in verse 15. When he returned, that is, upon receiving the kingdom, and that clearly speaks to the second advent, the second coming of the nobleman, when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered the servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. 
So he's making a strong distinction here between the kingdom received and the full exercise of that kingdom. He's received the kingdom now. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. Okay? And we are the products of that. We are the beneficiaries of that. We live in triumph. We are more than conquerors because Christ is more than a conqueror. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. But the full exercise of that kingdom will not happen until he returns. It's what we talk about already, but not yet. To give you a fancy term, you don't have to write this down because you probably won't ever use this language, but it's what we call in theology inaugurated eschatology. How's that for a fancy term? Don't ever use that. That'll cost you friends. <laughs> and when he returns, he's going to settle accounts. He's going to settle accounts. What we're talking about here is the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. There is a judgment that awaits when Christ returns, where he settles the accounts. And in this particular passage, he's going to come to the servants first. He's going to hold us accountable first. Notice in verse 16. The first came before him, that is the first servant, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. It's a faithful servant, a very faithful, very fruitful servant. He understood his mandate. Uh, he didn't live for anything but the king, okay? And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. Still a faithful servant, not quite as fruitful as the other. This guy probably watched college football on Saturdays, and the other guy didn't. And this is the only difference between them. But they typically both live for the king. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. And so the first servant gains 1,000% increase on his mina. The other servant gains 500% increase on his mina, on their investment. And what's remarkable is the reward isn't rest, but opportunity for further service. One's given authority over ten cities, and one is given authority over five cities. In other words, when we get to heaven, we're not going to play harps in these white septic gowns, okay? And just kind of float in the air in this bodiless kind of ethereal state. That doesn't sound like heaven to me. We're going to be given authority. We're going to rule as we were called and created to rule in Genesis chapter 1. We will reign with Christ, okay? And what's interesting here is that we're going to serve. We're going to serve the king in eternity. So what that tells us is if you're not serving now, you're just kind of sitting on the bench, going through the motions, coming to church when you feel like it, you're going to feel out of place when you get to heaven. Heaven, the new heaven and the new earth, is a place of service. You're just going to continue what you did in this present age. And it also teaches us that our reward will be proportional to our faithfulness. Now, granted, it's not works-based in this sense that it's 
separated from grace. Even our works are grace-driven, okay? Anything that I do that has any nobility about it is all of grace. But the fact is, we will receive uh, authority and blessing proportionate to our faithfulness. And some will receive greater honor than others in the new heavens and the new earth. As J.C. Ryle said, our title to heaven is all of grace. But our degree of glory in heaven will be proportioned to our works. And this is extremely comforting for ordinary Christians like us. You know, most of us will die in obscurity. Most Christians in the history of the church have died in obscurity. Most of the people God has used the most, you have never heard of. They didn't write books about them. They didn't write books themselves. They didn't have famous pulpits. They didn't have huge platforms. They were just faithful Christians where God had planted them. And they died in obscurity. But Jesus is saying that our experience in eternity will have nothing to do with the size of our platform in the here and now. I've heard people say, well, Billy Graham's just going to have a, a front row seat in heaven. Why? Not because he preached to millions. If he has great honor in heaven, it was because he was faithful in what God had entrusted him. That doesn't mean he's any more faithful than a Christian who lives in Spencer County who loves the Lord Jesus Christ and is jealous for his name and loves the local church that Christ has redeemed. And that's what Jesus is giving, these words of comfort. But our faithfulness is what he will hold us accountable to as servants. And this coming reckoning, and that's what it is, the judgment seat, it, it raises some of the most important questions we could ever ask, doesn't it? Like, um, what profit will I have to show for my gospel-deposited life? How is the stewardship entrusted to me going? And there are a few things he's entrusted to me as a steward. He's entrusted talents, yes. Am I using my gifts, my talents, for the sake of the kingdom? And of course, we know that God's kingdom work is primarily expressed through the local church. So we, we're not legalistic to say, what are you doing in the local church? Am I using my treasures? Now, I don't make a lot of money. Uh, I don't have a job right now. Whatever it is, but whatever treasure God has entrusted to you, are you using it for the sake of the kingdom? Am I using my talents? Am I using my treasures? Am I using my time? You, are, you have a short time on earth. It's a short preface to a long eternity. One of the things the older generation could teach the younger generation is don't be deceived into thinking that life is long. Life is short. It's a blink of the eye. Am I using my time? in a manner that reflects, I believe Christ is going to return. How about the truth? Every one of you have Bibles. Most of you, if not all of you, have numerous Bibles in your home. 
Are you being a faithful steward with the truth? Are you learning it? And are you teaching others? Are you passing it on to others? Those are questions we need to ask ourselves as faithful stewards. Of course, he addresses one more servant here. In other words, he's going to address three servants. Yes, he gave ten servants minus, and he only addresses three. Why? Because I think these three are representative of the entire ten. So he's addressed the first two, but notice he's going to address another servant starting in verse 20. This servant wasn't quite so faithful. Look with me in verse 20. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? This servant is a professing believer. He professes to be under the authority of this king. But this servant has made no investment. And his thoughts concerning the nobleman are false. They're slanderous. Of course, the nobleman's response to the first two servants has already proven that these were slanderous and false accusations. He's a benevolent king. First of all, he entrusted these servants, unworthy servants, un undeserving servants with minus and then he gave the first two servants cities that far exceeded what they had done on earth for the king in other words this this servant professes to be under the rule of the king but he doesn't truly know the king he and as a result he misrepresents the king with his words in fact, our knowledge of the king will determine how we live. Our perception of the king will determine how we live. If you are not a faithful servant, that betrays the fact that you have slanderous understanding about the king. He's associated with the king. He's not an outright enemy. He's not like one of those citizens who are saying, we, we want nothing to do with you. He just doesn't know him. He professes to know him. He professes to be under his rule. He's a professor, but he's not an investor. Okay? You think there are people like that today? They profess, but there's no investment of their life. He says, I'm identified with the king. I have sensitivity to his cause. I even gather, okay? I even attend events in honor of the king. I'm a part of the community of the king. I have sensitivity to him. But don't ask me to sacrifice for him. Don't ask me to give of my time for the king. I've got other things I'm more interested in. Don't ask me to give sacrificially for the king. 
because there's other things I want to purchase with my money that I love more. Don't ask me to speak about the king. I may lose friends in the process. That's the servant here, and many are like him today. They, they act as if God is some kind of tyrant, okay, who's always wanting but who never gives himself. Like the, the leech in Proverbs 30, verse 15. Solomon tells us that the leech has two daughters, give and give, but they're never satisfied. And I believe there are people who believe that God is like this leech. But how could we ever say this? Jesus is just days out from the cross. He's going into Jerusalem. And what is he going to do on the cross? He's going to lay down his life to save undeserving sinners like us. Is that a leech? Or is that the most glorious, benevolent king in the universe? David Gooding, the commentator, writes, Could anyone who truly believes that Christ gave his life for him ever turn around and tell the Lord that in asking him to work for him, the Lord was asking for something for nothing. You can't outgive the king. It's utterly impossible. That unrepentant mentality is going to be judged. Look with me in verse 24. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him. And give it to the one who has the ten minas. Now, there's a debate on whether this third servant was saved or not. I happen to think he wasn't. I think he represents those who profess to be under the rule of the king but isn't. Why do I say that? Well, he's already said to him, uh, be condemned. Uh, you, I will condemn you with your own words. He's called him wicked. Wicked people don't enter eternity with God. So I believe this servant is one who professes but doesn't possess, okay? And he says, and they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. The people are shocked at what the king does. He, he's taking what this servant had professed to have and he's given it to the one who already has much. You know, and, and as I'm thinking about that, it reminds me, this is the way we think about God. It's, he's unfair. What he does isn't fair. And, and that's the way we think. We think substandard thoughts about God unless the Word of God chastens our thoughts. Because this isn't what you would have done, and it's not what I would have done. But our thoughts are not God's thoughts. Our ways are not God's ways. We're not as holy and we're not as righteous as the infinitely holy and righteous God. And so those who have, that represents those who truly possess and are stewards of what they possess, they will receive more. And those who appear to have but don't truly possess, they're going to lose what they have. And in verse 26, we see the principle behind 
the nobleman's action. He says, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Verse 27. This brings us to one of the most vivid descriptions of judgment in the entire Bible. But as for the enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Does that fit your picture of Christmas? I mean, does this verse really need explaining? I don't think so. Judgment is coming to those who do not submit to the king. You say, well, that seems kind of over the top. Well, think about it. This is cosmic sedition. This is rebellion to a king. This is rebellion to a kingdom. And on earthly kingdoms, we we wouldn't think twice about someone who's in rebellion to the kingdom being judged, being penalized. But we're talking here about the king of kings. The one in whom Paul said all things were created through him and for him. And so this parable is speaking to the fact that uh, eternal fate awaits three types of individuals. The faithful steward, the unfaithful professing servant, in the outright enemy of the king. And it's on this note, Jesus is preparing to enter Jerusalem. Very next verse, verse 28, he's going to come into Jerusalem. That will be Sunday. He's going to die on Friday. Do you think this parable is important? Luke certainly thought so. Jesus certainly thought so. And it will be Jesus' work in Jerusalem that will become the ground of our salvation. Because here's the good news. It's not going to be on the quality of our stewardship that God saves us. That's good news. Because before God, none of us are truly faithful stewards. Okay? We're all poor stewards in light of His righteous standard but having said that our stewardship is a proof of our salvation it's not the ground of our salvation but it's the it's the proof of it you can profess all you want you can say i prayed the sinner's prayer i walked the aisle i watched billy graham but the proof of your salvation is your stewardship you're not saved by good works but you're saved for good works. You're saved unto good works. Ephesians 2.10. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. That's the evidence that you have been made new. It's the evidence that Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life. But the gospel tells me that my acceptance before God is not grounded in my stewardship it's grounded in the stewardship of another 
Jesus Christ. In fact, the greatest stewardship act of all time. He came to receive a kingdom, laying down his life, giving it away in his state of humiliation so that we who are poor stewards might be saved. Isn't that good news? He's not a harsh master after all, is he? He's a generous king. He's a benevolent king. And that's what Christmas is all about. We celebrate the benevolent king who covers our poor works, our poor stewardship with the, the greatest stewardship act in the history of the world, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when I understand that, you know what it makes me want to do? It makes me want to serve him. Not out of duty. There is a duty because he's king. He has authority over us. But out of delight. And that's what the gospel does. It changes us from dutiful slaves to delighting servants and stewards. One more question as we close today. Which of the three groups here most represents you? A faithful steward, an unfaithful professing servant, or the enemy of Christ? Of the three, there's only one that's going to end well. But for the gospel, and that's the gospel for us, the gospel tells us that it doesn't have to be that way for you. If you will repent of your sins and say, Lord, I, I have lived my life for myself. I have lived my life for my pleasures, my kingdom, and I know that's under judgment. But your son took the judgment for me. And I'm going to commit my life to him. The Bible says, your sins will be forgiven. And for those of us who have repented and who have believed, doesn't this text provoke you to good works? Out of love and gratitude for what he has done for you?